every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 21st of November, and this is Money Talk. A warm welcome from me, Peter Lewis. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. This is the show that brings you some of the best discussion and debate on Asia's top business and finance stories of the day. And in those headlines for today, China has left its benchmark lending rates unchanged as widely expected. At the November fixing on Monday, the one-year loan prime rate, which is the medium-term lending facility used for corporate and household loans, was left unchanged at a record low of 3.45%. That's the third straight month that the People's Bank of China has held the one-year LPR. The five-year rate, a reference for mortgages, was maintained at 4.2% for the fifth straight month. Sam Altman, the ousted chief executive of OpenAI, is to join Microsoft, according to the company's chief executive, Satya Nadella. In a post on social media platform X, Mr. Mr. Nadella said Sam Altman and Greg Brockman, together with colleagues, will be joining Microsoft to lead a new advanced AI research team. And a letter signed by 650 of the company's 770 workers called on the board of OpenAI to resign. The letter questions the board's competence and accuses it of undermining the firm's work. The letter's signatories, who include senior staff, say they may themselves resign if their demands are not met. They also state that Microsoft has assured them that there are jobs for all OpenAI staff if they want to join the company. Thailand's GDP advanced 1.5% year-on-year in Q3, below economists' expectations of 2.4%, and easing from a 1.8% gain in Q2. It was the eighth consecutive period of economic growth, but the softest pace of expansion since the fourth quarter of 2022. Bloomberg News reported Monday that Chinese regulators are drafting a list of 50 developers eligible for a range of financing. China Vanki, Saison Group and Longfor Group are among companies that have been named in a draft of the so-called White List. The list, which includes both private and state-owned developers, is intended to guide financial institutions as they weigh support for the industry via bank loans, debt and equity financing. On today's Money Talk, I'm joined by Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management, and LUS Economics Correspondent, Writer and Broadcaster, Barry Wood. U.S. stocks jumped Monday to start a holiday-shortened week and were boosted by a successful auction of Treasury debt. Tech stocks, which tend to be particularly sensitive to interest rate moves, led the gains. The tech-dominated Nasdaq Composite rose 1.1% to 14,285. The S&P 500 was up 0.7% at 4,547. The Dow climbed 204 points to close above 35,000 at 35,151, led by Microsoft. Shares in the software giant gained 2.1% to close at a new record high, boosted by the news that the company has hired Sam Altman, OpenAI's fired chief executive, to lead its new advanced AI research team. And Microsoft now has a market cap of over 2.8 trillion US dollars. Chipmaker NVIDIA added 2.3%, putting it also at a new all-time high ahead of its earnings report later today. US markets will be closed Thursday due to the Thanksgiving holiday, and Friday markets will be open for just half a day. 
Longer-dated Treasury yields fell on Monday afternoon after a successful auction of new 20-year government debt. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note had been up as much as five basis points in early trading, but completely reversed the move after the Treasury Department reported solid demand for its latest sale. The 10-year yield ended the day two basis points lower at 4.42%. Oil closed higher Monday, extending the strong gains seen on Friday, powered by reports that Saudi Arabia is preparing to prolong oil production cuts into the spring. Brent crude futures, dated January 2024, settled 1.1% higher at $82.32 a barrel, rebounding from last week's four-month low of $77. Spot Gold closed 0.1% weaker at $1,977 an ounce. And the US dollar hit an 11-week low on Monday as investors continued to bet that the Federal Reserve has finished raising interest rates. The US dollar index fell 0.4% to 103.5, a level previously hit on September the 1st. And the dollar has now wiped out its gains for 2023. The yen was the main beneficiary from the buck's continued decline. The dollar ended the day 0.8% weaker against the Japanese yen at 148.4. The Chinese yuan was boosted by the latest stimulus news out of Beijing, plus an even stronger PBOC midpoint fix. It closed 0.6% higher in Shanghai at 7.168 renminbi to the dollar. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rose half a percent to 3,068. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index rose 324 points, or 1.9%, to 17,778, reversing most of Friday's 2.1% loss when shares of Alibaba plunged 10%. On Monday, Alibaba rebounded 1.6%. And it looks like the rally will continue for Hong Kong stocks today, futures pointing to a gain of about 66 points for the Hang Seng Index. That's 0.4%. The index should start the day around about 17,840. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And a warm welcome to our bright and breezy panel of commentators this morning. We have with us, as always on a Tuesday morning, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant Stuart Allcroft. Morning, Stuart. Good morning, Peter, but I'll deny the bright and breezy today. Oh, dear. (laughs) It's going to be a tough show then. (laughs) It'll be a tough show. Also with us, we have Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. Nice to talk to you again, Richard. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And over in Washington, D.C., as always on a Tuesday morning, our U.S. economics correspondent, Barry Wood, and a chance to wish you a happy Thanksgiving Day for this coming Thursday. Hey, thank you very much, Peter. I will say this was a very bright Monday, but it is pitch dark now, and it is breezy to the point of being a strong wind and very cold. You have to wear gloves and a heavy jacket. (laughs) <laughs> it's very cold to me is anything below about 20 degrees yeah yeah well you don't want to be here then <laughs> <laughs> well i'll tell you what let's start and talk about artificial intelligence a little bit because sam altman who's the ousted chief executive of open ai's to join microsoft that's according to Satya Nadella, the company's chief executive. In a post on X, he said, we're extremely excited to share the news that Sam Altman and Greg Brockman, together with colleagues, will be joining Microsoft to lead a new advanced AI research team. And we look forward to providing them with the resources needed uh, for their success. Mr. De- Nadella did say that Microsoft remained 
committed to its partnership with OpenAI. It's committed more than $10 billion in capital to OpenAI. And before the ousting of Mr. Altman, investors were looking at selling shares at a valuation of $86 billion US dollars, which would have made the San Francisco-based group one of the world's most highly valued private companies. And in a letter signed by 650 of the company's 770 workers, they called on the board to resign. They questioned the board's competence, accused it of undermining the firm's work, and the letter's signatories also states that Microsoft has assured them that there are jobs for all OpenAI staff if they want to join the company. Now, Barry, I know you watch Silicon Valley quite closely, because obviously it's a big part of the US economy, but even by Silicon Valley standards, this is pretty extraordinary what's going on here, isn't it, at uh, OpenAI, which for listeners who aren't aware of it, is is really the company that's at the forefront of artificial intelligence. Absolutely. You know, you can go back, Peter, to the beginning of the year when there was all of this concern about chat GPT. And of course, that was OpenAI. And then you had this Microsoft investment of, what, $10 billion. And now they have a 49% interest in the company. But no one knows what's going on. It does seem at this moment that the board is probably going to be ousted. You have to wonder, they're not going to leave San Francisco to go up to Seattle where Microsoft is based, that probably um, these two people, both uh, uh, Mr. Brockman and uh, Mr. Altman, are going to be in the recast open AI. But uh, that um, the remarks you had from Nadella are are the latest news that we have that's really tangible. But it reflects, I think, most of all, the intense competition between Microsoft, Apple, and Google on artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. No one wants to be left behind. And of course, then there are the foreign players. I mean, China's involved, South Korea's involved, and the Europeans. So this is a god-awful mess, and we don't know how it's going to end up. It seems to reflect that there is some split amongst the board about the direction the company should go in and whether, you know, it should be a profitable company or whether it should have more altruistic uh, sort of motives. And, and, you know, the board seems to be split on on really the development of of AI and open AI. Yeah, it does seem that way. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think the extraordinary thing here is that if Microsoft uh, does own 49% of the company, it doesn't have any representation on the board. The board was only six people, two of whom have been sacked. Now we see one of the other four has signed the same letter as all the employees in support. Um, and the remaining three members of the board have, uh, who are non-executive and are not involved in the day-to-day of business appear to um, be sitting on what if you if you really want to sort of look at it in harsh terms an 86 billion dollar collapse um, mm-hmm. because that was the valuation that was being put on the company if it should get uh, listed now I think the the issue from what we're seeing is that the the board, or at least the remaining members of the board, were very concerned that Sam Altman was not prepared to commit to a safe development of ChatGPT. This is the this is the argument they're putting forward, mm-hmm. um, and the safe development. Well, <clears throat> what is that? Well, presumably one which doesn't take over the world. Um, <laughs> but 
But the, the reality is, even if you had asked Chat GPT to write this story, I bet they wouldn't have come up with this scenario. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. Richard, it, I, I thought, um... Richard, I thought the first rule of boards was do no harm. <laughs> well, and and also the other thing about boards is you need to have the three W's, wealth, wisdom and work. Uh, and I'm not sure there's been an awful lot of wisdom going around, although it has to be said, the whole principled idea behind ChatGPT to be a non-profit company. Um, it's amazing when there's $86 billion um, uh, left to be divided among people, how quickly those principles disappear. Mm. Um but I think actually it is a big win for Microsoft. They had uh, they were putting all this money in, you know, taxation with no representation on the board. And I think that they're in a situation now where they, they can be in the driving seat. Uh, you know, even if for some reason Sam doesn't join, there'll be lots of other um, people who are disaffected who will probably join Microsoft. So I think they're probably the big winner in this. And they played their cards extremely well. They haven't got involved in the squabble on the board. Um, they have got involved with uh, somebody who's who's been fired and is able to attack independently. Um, and they actually rise above all of this melee in, in quite uh, a good fashion. So uh, I think that uh, all in all, it's probably going to be a win. We're going to see all of these bright people scattered. Uh, all around Silicon Valley, all doing their own businesses and, um, you know, creating a lot of new little chat GPTs. And I can think it can only be good for the industry. I, I heard yeah, one. I and... think you've got it. Sorry, Barry. I think you've got it exactly right, Richard. Uh, so far, Nadella and Microsoft are the winners. And you can say they were the winners all the way back to January. But uh, now with uh, Nadella saying, come our way, Mr. Brockman and Mr. Altman, I mean, this is probably going to be definitive and, and at least for the moment, uh, ongoing. So I can't see that uh, this board is going to last more than another 24 hours. And I think the other players are probably in their offices wondering how can we keep up? Because we can't forget the research is going on in San Francisco. And all of these folks are terrified that Microsoft is going to have an insurmountable lead over Apple and Google. Well, one analyst said after one analyst said after this, Microsoft has just pulled off one of the greatest acquisitions of all time because prior to the firing of Sam Altman, OpenAI was worth ninety billion US dollars. They've in effect acquired the guts of the company and you know may well have most of their employees without having to spend a single dollar other than just paying their salaries. What I think is extraordinary though is that um, there doesn't appear to be on the part of um, uh, open AI, any form of um, protection for themselves of staff moving to competitors. And in most businesses, you'd have expected that sort of thing to have occurred. That isn't, that clearly isn't the case here. Uh, and I think that's a big pinpoint, Stuart, because if you look at what the board has consisted of, it doesn't seem to have consisted of uh, maybe people with substantial experience. And this this is running through American business at the moment, that you have all of these new businesses that have been set up. Um, there's no governance. I mean, if you look at the whole issue with Sam Bankman-Fried and uh, the Bitcoin uh, exchange yeah. that went bust, uh, owing billions, they had no regulatory backup. They had almost no accounting backup. Um, you have a bunch of, of basically 30-year-olds running around uh, Masters of the Universe thinking that they own the world, 
and they actually don't even know how to run a company. So it's a big indictment, <laughs> I think, of these suited people in flash suits who come in and put billions of dollars into companies um, uh, where, where the people don't know actually how to spend that money. Yeah, I agree with you. It does highlight the key person risk, doesn't it, which we're used to in the financial services sector, of course, but obviously it clearly exists in other sectors as well, like here, like in technology, um, like in AI. You lose a couple of key people and, and your valuation is slashed. Yes, exactly. Well, this is, this is the, the issue, and, and especially when they go to your competition or indeed to your major shareholder. Um, and, and, and so, from, as, as Richard has rightly pointed out, um, Microsoft have got a fantastic deal out of this. Mm. And their share price moved up as a, as a result of market respect. Mm. Does, does this have implications for AI overall or other companies within the sector? Or is this just a very specific incident for, for one company? Well, I don't think we know. But it seems to me that the element that overrides all of our discussion is the perceived danger of this new technology. Mm. As I think it was Stuart said, I mean, you know, can this technology destroy the world? You've got key players. They may or may not all be at Microsoft. But this is not just a new iPhone. This is not a new operating system. This is something that is, for a lot of people, very scary. And by the way, if you look at the APEC meeting in San Francisco, they talked about AI. So look at the Bletchley Park meeting of November 1. Now there's going to be a follow-up, thank goodness, in Korea, because you've got to get everybody involved. Mm, I mean, they're, they're... This is an arms race, isn't it? We're going to be in a situation where no matter how much people talk about it, the genie's out of the bottle. And there are going to be people all over the place doing uh, all sorts of clever AI stuff, regardless of regulation, uh, in different parts of the world. So... I actually don't think it's going to be the end of the world. All we're looking at is computers <laughs> doing things very, very quickly uh, that human beings uh, do already. Uh, so it's going to change what we do, change how we think. But the electronic calculator did the same thing as well. Mm. It does seem to be a little bit of a victory for those activists who have been warning that AI systems were becoming too uh, powerful. And as, as you said, Barry, basically a, a threat. It seems that some people on the uh, AI board had, had similar concerns. Well, I think that's correct. And it's also the idea that when you're looking at that much money that we've been talking about, there was a report over the weekend here that what Mr. Altman wanted to do was set up a separate company. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I don't know how... It's also preliminary and, and process-oriented at the moment. It's hard to know. But I, 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 I think all the things we're talking about certainly have relevance. Okay. Well, you mentioned earlier, uh, Barry, the APEX summit. AI obviously came up at the, uh, the APEX summit. President Xi Jinping at the end of it reiterated that China's going to stick to a path of peaceful uh, development. It was his first visit to the U.S., uh, in 16 years, he said the fundamental goal of China's development is to improve the well-being of the Chinese people, not to replace anyone. Do you think, um, Barry, Americans were calmed by the words of President <laughs> Xi Jinping about how he wants to now uh, cooperate and collaborate um, and also is not a threat to, uh, to the US and trying to upstage it? Did, and also, did he calm investors' nerves? Well, those are tough questions. I think on the case of uh, whether he calmed nerves, no, 
Congress, they all got out of town. So they're not making comments until they get back. But the, the opposition to the meeting itself from a lot of the Republicans has been very pronounced. And then you had, I couldn't help but counting, 13 cabinet people and others on the U.S. side during the APEC meeting with President Xi and an equal number of Chinese. I mean, this is very high stakes stuff. Four hours of meeting and that set up several more meetings as the days went on. I think it was exceedingly positive. But as to the business community, investors, they're still waiting for a signal. And I don't think they're going to get it as yet. I'm not sure when they will, because I think the Americans were very skillful in threading the needle, saying, yes, we want trade, we want business activity, but we want it on a, a level playing field with no restrictions or at least fairness that is guaranteed. So we'll see. I, 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 I think it was exceedingly positive, and we've all talked about this in the weeks advance of this meeting, but now we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, clearly uh, President Xi was on a charm offensive um, into the United States. He said a lot of the things that people would like to, to have heard from him. Uh, he's now met with um, the U.S. president. He had previously met with the Australian prime minister. Um, he is doing the things that um, he needs to do to start to um, bring up um, China back into the world fold, as it were, because it, it, whichever way you look at it, China had probably tried to separate itself out for a while. But it is also very, very clear, and, and, and we'll get to know more about that over the next few months, the economic situation in China is not very good. So anything that President Xi does should be seen as supporting and improving uh, an economic situation over the next six or 12 months. Yes, I think we're probably coming back to a more normalized situation between the two countries. There will always be, I think from now on, a great deal of, of suspicion um, and a lot of um, uh, ideas have to be maybe, maybe eased. Um, but I think what we're basically coming to a situation is that the two economies do not compete. China is broadly uh, a manufacturer, an exporter with a very big domestic market that is um, being hit, obviously, a lot by, by COVID. Uh, the U.S. is a consumer. Uh, it's further along that development path. It's much more focused on services. Um, and that will remain, even though both sides are trying to uh, improve their game on the other side. The two economies are complementary. And as a result, I think that we will continue to see business relationships still being reasonably strong between the two, uh, despite what the political rhetoric that we might see at a much higher level. And the trade, trade Richard, between I the disagree. two is holding up. I, 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 I've got to disagree with you, Richard. Um, look at technology. There's certainly competition there. What the Chinese are doing with all of the chip technology and the, the all the software and, of course, the hardware for computers, that's direct competition to the Silicon Valley. If you look at Boeing, they're certainly going to be hit by the Chinese development of a new passenger jetliner, which is already flying. 
that's going to intensify. If you look at Caterpillar, they're already on their back foot. So I think there is a lot of competition. I think the implication is that the Americans are going to lose that competition. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that that's the fear, but I don't see it being being maybe as serious as you think. Uh, the Chinese aircraft is is not up to uh, current generational standards, I think, in terms of aircraft. But you're completely right in terms of things like chips. The Chinese are going to try and do as well, if not better, than the Americans. And the Americans are going to try and do as well, if not better, in terms of areas of manufacturing, especially where robots are concerned. So there will be some overlap. But at the moment, the two economies need each other. Yeah, and, and I'd, take it, I'd take it a bit further than that. I mean, obviously, um, electric vehicles are a big area of competition. But the area of competition that we don't want to talk about is the manufacturing of armaments and the fact that um, China is a major exporter now of, of um, items that can be used for war. And it is a great supporter of Russia, of Korea, and, for, um, and, and we assume that it is probably uh, providing stuff in the Middle East these days. So we have to be a little bit... Not uh, as much as the Americans. <laughs> yeah, I but, hate to say that. Oh, my yeah, goodness. But, you want to talk about arms production and exports. Look at the weapons being used in Ukraine by the Ukrainians and by the Israelis. They're American. Yeah, and the, and this is the thing, that, that you've got the Americans on one side and the the, the Russians and, and others on the other side. And they're, they're all they're sort of thrashing around with um, and, and killing each other off with weaponry. Um, so it absolutely is going to support the arms industry all over the world. I wonder how long, though, this truce can last, because for the last three, four years, really, the history of U.S.-China relations has been a period of calm. And then there's an incident like the balloon incident we saw earlier in the year, and it all blows up again. Um, and and the, the, the war of words restarts. Is it just a matter of time, Barry, before we're back to that situation? Well, I hope not. But uh, you're right. That has been the, uh, the way things have evolved. But, you know, we've been in what might be called Cold War II for five years now. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, I think that's why all of us think of the meeting in San Francisco as positive. Because, yes, these two leaders met a year ago in Bali, but, you know, that was, I think that was perfunctory. We didn't get any sense that there was a tangible takeaway from that. This time, there was much more of an expectation, much more preparation. So I hope you're wrong, Peter, but we'll see. Mm. I'll just use two words for your answer, Peter. Donald Trump. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> That's the, that would upend everything, wouldn't it? Who knows? Yes. Who knows? Oh, uh, yeah. Who knows? And next election. Yeah. <laughs> so, so President Xi may not even have to deal with President Biden for much longer. Yeah, exactly. That's, that is the risk. That is the risk. Uh, the, the one disappointment for me from all of this was, you know, there were some positive things. I, I think, Barry, President Biden must be pleased about getting the agreement he wanted on more military dialogue um, and on fentanyl uh, being restricted. But there really wasn't anything on the trade or economic side. No concessions by You're either right. side. And we're just left with all the same sanctions and tariffs that were in place before. You're right. But don't forget that... Um the Treasury Secretary was there, the Commerce Secretary was there, the Climate Chief was there, and they're all matched 
by their counterparts on the Chinese side. So I would look for progress in the next few weeks or months. But uh, you're right, nothing tangible on any of those issues. And, and President Xi didn't really take his opportunity, did he, at that big dinner with the 300 executives to go and make his case for why foreign investors should come back um, in, into the country. He didn't really touch upon that, in the, not in his live speech anyway, at the dinner. I know he made some well, written comments afterwards. Look, he, he, yeah, um, he got a standing ovation. I mean, that should not be minimized. <laughs> these uh, Several <laughs> hundred times. of these, these Americans, I mean, they want, they're almost salivating to get back into the Chinese. Not, not to say they've left the Chinese market, but they want to do more. And they liked what President Xi had to say. They took that clearly as an invitation to come back and to, to, to in fact, invest more. So we'll see where that goes. They're waiting for a signal now from the administration. And who knows if they're going to get it. Mm. Yeah, I, I think there's also an element of superstar status. You know, who wouldn't want to meet the president of China at $40,000 a plate? Um, but it's also <laughs> very unusual. You know, why should a head of state meet a bunch of businessmen in another country? You know, it, it kind of breaks a lot of these diplomatic and political protocols. So it was quite a big signal in itself. But the other extraordinary thing was that he didn't deliver the speech in person. I can't quite figure out why that was, but maybe it was to indicate, you know, that this wasn't a, an equal level on a diplomatic status. He was prepared to meet uh, and people wanted to meet him as a superstar. Uh, but also, uh, you know, in a sense, there are too low a diplomatic level for him to address them directly. Mm. But it does show, doesn't it, where his interests lie, who he's trying to court in the United States. It's not really President Biden. It's investors and, and business people like Tim, Tim Cook. Cook. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, look, all you have to do is look at the planning that has gone into, uh, you know, the Greater Bay Area. Uh, that is seen really as a Chinese answer to the Silicon Valley. Many more millions of people. Uh, I'm sure that uh, President Xi regarded that as a real opportunity, not just to meet people, but to have a look. And I would think that the Chinese are uh, making progress. Mm. I, I presume that President Xi also, just as much as the US, doesn't want problems on yet another front with China. Same thing in reverse. Uh, President Xi's got so many economic problems, a collapsing property market. The last thing he needs at the moment is confrontation with China, uh, with the US. Well, yeah, exactly. This is this is the whole point, isn't it? But but uh, I, I mean, Richard makes the point that he didn't stand up and give a speech on Thursday, but he did do on Wednesday. Um, and you know, the the Thursday, um, the written comments um, that were issued following the uh, forum that he was attending um, was was just as much of importance insofar as he he's trying to welcome foreign businesses to go to china mm. and, and and to set up in china now doing so takes a takes a time it takes quite a long time and this is the common problem that all businesses have with doing it going to china it is so slow so anything that can be done to improve that will be an advantage and i think that's what 
many people will want to hear. Mm. Now, on China's economy, <clears throat> there was a piece in the Financial Times over the weekend that's been quite widely commented on. It's uh, by Rushi Sharma, who's chair of Rockefeller International, and he argues that China's rise is reversing. He notes that the past two years have seen the largest drop in the nation's share of global GDP since the Mao era. After stagnating under Mao Zedong in the 1960s and 70s, China opened to the world in the 1980s and then took off in subsequent de decades. But the FT article claims that the biggest global story of the past half a century may be over. China's share of the global economy rose nearly tenfold from below 2% in 1990 to 18.4% in 2021. says no nation has ever risen so far so far so fast but the revert then the reversal began in 2022 china's share of the world economy shrank a bit this year it will shrink more significantly to 17 percent. so that two-year drop of 1.4 percent is the largest since 1960 and it goes on to say that china's decline could reorder the world since the 1990s the country's share of global gdp grew mainly at the expense of europe and japan the gap left by China has now been filled mainly by the US and by other um, emerging nations. So I wonder what, what you think of that. I mean, the, the way that this article looks at GDP um, is not inflation adjusted. So it basically takes into account uh, the, the growth of workers, the, the productivity of those workers, but it doesn't adjust GDP by inflation, which allows you then to get to almost any target you want. But I'm wondering what you think. Well, clearly, um, you have to take account of the fact that China, until this year, was the most populous nation in the world and was growing at a very rapid pace, not just in terms of absolute population, which is now at 1.4 billion, but also in terms of the emergence of what would be the sort of middle class, if you like, of the population, people moving from rural to urban uh, conurbations, and that accelerates rather than slows economic development. Mm. So I think that uh, we have seen a lot of the, the the growth of China actually coming from the movement of population to, to urban population. Uh, that urban population wants to buy goods, it spends money, it earns money. Uh, the, the levels of unemployment are not so so high in China, albeit except in the very uh, in the young age group, the, the below 25 age group, where unemployment is pretty high. Um, but it is still the case that uh, China has got substantial resources. It, uh, it has substantial re uh, reserves, a lot of which are still held in U.S. treasuries. And I think that... Um, uh, well, I, maybe I'll just say I just disagree with the sort of outcome of the article you've referred to. I mean, that's the key issue, isn't it? The the population, China's share of the world's working age population hit a peak of 24%. It's now down to 19% and it's expected to fall to 10% uh, over the next five years. So basically, it means that China's real long-term potential growth rate, if you take the sum of new workers entering the, the labour force, the output per worker, it's more like 2.5%. So that's a big decline from what we've been used to. It is a but big I don't think it, we it, should miss Stuart. I was just going to say, it's a big decline, but I don't necessarily agree with those numbers because, as we've seen in, in, in the Western world, people work much to much older ages these days, and these numbers probably based on, on old uh, economic um, numbers rather than future economic numbers. Sorry, Richard, go on. 
No, I, I just think the the FT is um, you you know talking about a case of the bleeding obvious. Um, of course, countries go through life cycles. Economies go through life cycles. China had a period of enormous development in the nineties and in the double O's, um, and it's flattening off. It happens to all economies. Uh, you can see this a hundred years ago in um, uh, in in Europe and. Uh, uh, you, you know, even in the 80s in the US, they do flatten off. And that's what we're seeing with that period of history when the Chinese economy is flattening off. Uh, at the same time, you've got India, for instance, which has got uh, now a greater population where growth at 6% is probably still achievable because of foreign direct investment and people moving in, etc. Um, so I think we're just really looking at the natural course of the life cycle. And um, to, to my mind, for many years now, China is not a developing market. It's a developed market. You only have to walk around Beijing and Shanghai to realize, you, you know, it's a, it's a, they're sophisticated cities. Um, China's growth will flatten out. That doesn't have an impact on China's wealth or China's influence or anything. But sheer growth, which isn't a very good metric anyway, will flatten. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly of the view, as I think both Richard and Stuart are, I'm very skeptical of these assertions that the Chinese rise is over. I mean, sure, growth is slowing, but my goodness, all you have to do is look at the uh, development of, of electric vehicles or look at the the uh, high-speed train system. Uh, obviously, consumers are spending more money. They want quality goods. So, no, I think uh, China's rise continues. But at, albeit at a slower pace. What is interesting is uh, the world economy is, is expected to grow by $8 trillion over the past year. The US accounts for about 45% of that. Uh, China accounts for none of it. Um, but other emerging nations account for the other half of that growth. And then out of those emerging markets, half the gains are going to come from just five countries, India, Indonesia, Mexico, Brazil, and Poland. So presumably, that might be an indication of where uh, sort of shifts are going to come in the future, maybe some economies we should be watching out for. Well, yes, of course. Um, the, these are uh, painfully obvious that these are growing economies, but you have to assume that they will continue, to, or at least I think the assumption here is that they will be continuing to grow in a relatively straight line from where they have been. And that's not proven by any stretch of the imagination. Mm, Absolutely. Right. And their growth is dependent very much on growth in the Western world because it's dependent very much on investment. That's right. No, I, I agree with that. And don't forget, I think it was the physicist Niels Bohr who said that uh, prediction is a very difficult matter, particularly when it comes to the future. I don't uh, see <laughs> Indonesia as challenging uh, anyone, really, uh, or India or Poland. And Poland is the great success story in Europe. But my goodness, uh, is China, U.S., Europe. I mean, that's the way the world looks to me. And India, yes. maybe, going forward? Well, India, yes. but it, it, and, and India is doing exceptionally well currently. Um, but it does have a, a remarkable ability at scoring own goals, too. But <laughs> well, also uh, losing World Cups. Well, well that, that's, a, that's another metaphor in the cricket world, yes. So, yeah, well, we'll keep Barry out of this conversation. This yeah. American. <laughs> All right. <Cricket. laughs> yes, 
All right. Well, that's a, a good point to end on. Thank you all very much. Very interesting discussion this morning. You heard there Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer of Port Shelter Investment Management, Stuart Aldcroft, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant, and our US Economics Correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Barry Wood. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von File, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Nitin Dialdis, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. With a view from Japan, is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Have a good Tuesday. Money Talk.